In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you think of philosophy, you probably think of ancient Greece or 18th century France. Probably don't think of America. But this country also birthed its own set of philosophical luminaries, and my guest today had a unique encounter with them. When modern-day professor of philosophy John Keg was a graduate student at Harvard, he was dispirited and struggling personally and professionally. But thanks to a chance encounter with an elderly New Englander, he discovered an abandoned library in New Hampshire full of rare first edition books of the great works of Western philosophy, many of which were owned by quintessentially American thinkers like Ralph Waldo Emerson and William James. Keg began cataloging the books and in the process uncovered the intellectual history of American philosophy and its responses to big existential questions like, is life worth living? Today on the show, I talked to John about his experience with this abandoned library in the woods of New Hampshire and with the authors of the books which were contained therein. We start off talking about how American philosophy is often overlooked and its big ideas, which include transcendentalism and pragmatism. We then dig into how the works of European and Asian thinkers influenced American philosophers like Emerson and Thoreau while they yet try to create something completely new. John and I then discuss how American pragmatism was developed in response to the philosophical issues Darwinism created around the ideas of free will and what it means to live a moral life. And we end our conversation discussing how the pragmatist William James answered the question of whether life is worth living and how his answer might be said to hinge on one essential word, if. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash American Philosophy. John Kig, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me again. So we had you on last year to talk about your book, Hiking with Nietzsche, and it was part memoir, part an exploration of Nietzsche's philosophy and how it's influenced your life. Today we brought you back to talk about your book you wrote before that called American Philosophy. And again, it's this you know part memoir, but also part exploration of the history of American philosophy. And it's a really unique hook on how you uncovered or explored American philosophy. Before we get to that sort of personal connection, let's talk about what American philosophy is. Because I think a lot of people, they are listening to this, particularly American listeners, and they're like, America has a philosophy. Typically, they think of philosophy as European or Asian. So big picture, how would you describe American philosophy and and who are the big names um, involved with it? Great. So your listeners are not alone in thinking, American philosophy? America doesn't have philosophy. In fact, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to the United States in the 1830s, the French critic said pretty much the same thing. He said, there is no place on earth that is more antithetical to philosophy than America. But what he didn't realize is that there was a different strain of philosophy developing in New England right around that time. And the first strain of American philosophy is what's known as American transcendentalism. And it was founded by three sort of central figures, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and Margaret Fuller. And the sort of central tenets of American transcendentalism is that individuals can find themselves and express their freedom 
apart from societal constraints, the constraints of tradition or the constraints of uh, conventional culture. So Emerson is famous for saying, trust thyself, every heart beats sort of strings to that iron, iron core. That's the notion of self-reliance. And Thoreau takes this and the famous naturalist goes off to Walden and tries to be self-reliant on the shores of Walden Pond. Margaret Fuller tries to take that expression of self-reliance and apply it to the position of women in the 1850s. So transcendentalism is about freedom and finding yourself in nature, much like the European romantics. This gives rise in the 1860s and 1870s to a movement called American Pragmatism that was founded by William James and his friend C.S. Peirce in the 1870s. And pragmatism, like American transcendentalism, is very much concerned with securing human freedom and human dignity in a culture that they thought threatened both. So the Industrial Revolution was going during the 1900s in New England, and both the transcendentalists and the pragmatists were worried that this compromised the freedom of individuals and their communities. And so James and Peirce thought that philosophy, and this is different than European philosophy, should be world-ready, or to be judged truth, philosophical truths, were to be judged on the basis of their practical consequences, how they affected people in the world. Well, we'll talk a little more detail about transcendentalism and pragmatism and how they connected with you during this time of your life. But let's talk about the personal connection you had with American philosophy, and that is... When you were a graduate student at Harvard, you stumbled upon this private library in the middle of the woods of New Hampshire that was pretty much abandoned, and it contained thousands of rare and antique books. How did that library end up there? Who owned it? And what did all the books have in common? Sure. So, great question. So, in 2009, I was a postdoc at Harvard, and I was writing a book about the founder of American pragmatism, William James. And my father had just gone through a sort of struggle with cancer and had died and my first uh, my first marriage was in shambles and i was looking for answers both philosophical and personal answers at this time and in 2009 i was asked to organize a conference in Shakorua, new hampshire which was up in the, it's up in the white mountains where james summered very close to his old summer house And I went up to organize this conference or help organize the conference, and I came across a fellow by the name of Bun Nickerson. He was 91 years old. And he said, hi, young guy, what do you do for a living? I told him I was a philosopher, and he said, oh, I knew a philosopher once. His name was William Ernest Hawking. Now, William Ernest Hawking was the last great idealist at Harvard in the first half of the 1900s, first half of the 20th century. Hawking was also William, one of William James's last students at Harvard. Hawking had a summer house, actually in a state, that he called Westwind, which is in Madison, New Hampshire, about six miles from Shakorua. And Bun Nickerson said, if you want, I can take you up there. You should see the library. Now, I always thought the libraries were something like Widener Library or Houghton at Harvard or something very big and impersonal. But back in the 1900s, individuals had very impressive libraries. And when individuals died, they had to figure out where their literary estates were going to go to. In the case of William James, he gave a large number of his books to William Ernest Hawking, who then took them to the hinterlands of New Hampshire and put them in a non-winterized 2,000 square foot house 
which he called the library, next to a very large mansion on 400 pristine acres of New Hampshire wilderness. And when I came across it in 2009, it had been largely abandoned for 12 years. And at the time, the doors were open. And Bun Nickerson said, well, why don't you go look around? I'm sure the family won't mind. And that's what I did. And inside, it turns out that William Ernest Hawking was one of America's greatest collectors of first editions from modern philosophy. So first edition Descartes, first edition Kant, first edition Hume, first edition Thomas Hobbes. And he also possessed the libraries or partial parts of the libraries of William James and another idealist working in the 1900s, Josiah Royce. In total, the books were about 10,000 in number and were, for the most part, untouched for about 60 or 70 years. And I'll stop there, and maybe we can talk about what, what unified the books. Well, yeah, just to give people an idea, like first edition Hobbes, that's like from like the 1600s. Correct. So, I mean, first edition Leviathan, 1651, 1649, 1651. These are 300, 300 in some cases, 400-year-old books. And they were just hanging out in a non-winterized library in New Hampshire. Well, so what was this guy? What was Hawking? He was one of the last, I mean, maybe you can say he's one of the last American philosophers. Why was he collecting first edition books of European philosophy? So there's this conception that American philosophy, transcendentalism and pragmatism is are or were divorced from the European traditions that they rebelled against. This isn't quite true. So what Hawking was doing was actually trying to amass the books that supported these American traditions. And in some cases, the books that pragmatists and ideal, American idealists responded to. But he, he believed that there was something worthwhile about investigating the past in order to understand our present day. That's what he was doing with those very old books. He also was collecting, creating a sort of time capsule of American intellectual history from its inception to, to what was his present day in 1960, which would explain why when he's one of the books that we discovered there was John Locke's Two Treatise on Civil Government, which founded basically the political formation of the United States. Locke was an Englishman, but his understanding of political philosophy got applied almost directly to the American experience. And as you said, some of these, you know, a lot of these books, they were owned by William James and some of these other American philosophers. And they not only were they owned by them, they had like notes written by them, these guys themselves inside the books. That's right. I mean, the marginalia is, was a fascinating sort of experience to go through. So in the margins, James would write in, in his books. So when he's developing his famous lectures that turned into the varieties of the religious experience that were published in 1910, He's reading a number of books which end up at the Hawking estate, and a lot of books from Buddhism from the early 1900s. And so you can read his copies of, for example, Paul Karras's Buddhism and its Christian Critics, and you can see the way that James is responding to Buddhist theology or to the Buddhist spiritualism in real time. So you can see that he's responding to certain lines from the Dhammapada or from the Lotus Sutra, in particular ways, which is a fascinating way to think about research, I believe. And then how did how did no one know about this library? Well, people had visited in, in the past, but those people, for the most part, John McDermott, for example, 
visited the Hawking estate in the 1960s. John McDermott is a professor, was a professor at Texas A&M. He visited the library and was friends with Hawking, and he passed down the knowledge of the library to a few scholars within the American philosophical tradition, but not very many. See, idealism, this the sort that Hawking supported, along with American pragmatism, went out of favor in the 1900s, around the 1950s and 1960s, when philosophy took what might be considered a logical or analytic bent. Philosophy during that time modeled itself off of mathematics and science, rather than these more humanistic disciplines such as transcendentalism. Well, let's dig into uh, more details about American philosophy. So you mentioned sort of the first strain of American philosophy were the American transcendentalists. And their whole idea, their big tenet was self-reliance and and freedom, right? And breaking from tradition and, and marching the beat of your own drummer. And as, as I was reading your description of transcendentalism, the, the impression that I got was that Thoreau and Emerson and Fuller, like they were very self-conscious of the fact they were trying to make something new in philosophy. Yes, no, that's true. Um, and actually, what you can think about is that many of these thinkers, Emerson's grandfather, for example, or rather, many of these thinkers had relatives and had their ancestors who were part of the American Revolution. Emerson, for example, grew up in the Old Manse, which overlooked Old North Bridge, which is where one of the first battles of the revolution occurred, and his grandfather was part of that fight. And if you think about that legacy, the challenge was to make something new, not only in a political sense, which their grandfathers did, but in this case, in a personal and intellectual sense. So the transcendentalists shared that political freedom secured through military or political means was one thing. But it meant pitifully little, actually, if we didn't exercise our personal freedoms and intellectual freedoms, and also our artistic freedoms. So what you, what you hear in that desire to make something new is also the attempt to stand up to your sort of inheritance, this free inheritance. And so, as you said, despite them rebelling against traditional philosophy, they both Emerson and Thoreau read widely and deeply from philosophy, not only European, but Asian. I mean, were there ideas that ended up in their idea of transcendentalism that they took from Greek philosophy or Asian? Like, what, what were those ideas? So one thing that your readers and your listeners might be interested in is that Emerson proposed self-reliance, which is this notion of individual freedom, but he always wanted it to be tempered with a concept that he called compensation. Compensation is an essay that he publishes in a collection with self-reliance, he intends them as sister essays. Self-reliance says, to thine own self be true. Compensation says, no matter how free you are or no matter how true you are you are, and you are to yourself, you always operate within a wider cosmic and social, give what he calls give and take. And this give and take is a sort of karmic model of action, where every action has a sort of equal and opposite reaction. And this is a position that he takes directly from what he calls Indian superstition, but what is really sort of Hindu metaphysics, which he's studying in the 1830s, 1820s, and 1830s. Well, that's interesting because, yeah, I think a lot of young Americans, they read Emerson and they're like this, especially when they're teenagers. You always read it when you're 14, 15, and it's like Nietzsche. You're like, yes, 
this is this tastes good and it's all about the individual but that's not the end of the story that's right and in fact these two things need to be weighed and they 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 stand in what philosophers call a dialectical relation. They seem to be opposites, but they're really supposed to be balanced, or there's there's supposed to be a give and take between these concepts. So the radical freedom that we find in Emerson needs to be tempered or toned down with the realization that really we're actually not that free, which we see in Emerson and also in Nietzsche. Right. Like so yeah, that radical individualism can lead to anime and like neurostenia like i mean i guess like james would call it neurostenia that sense of anxiety and like existential angst and emerson said well yes you need to be an individual but also see yourself within a bigger picture that's correct that's correct and i mean they also when you're thinking about indian philosophy they i know i know emerson and thoreau like they read the bhagavad-gita which kind of talks about this concept of you being part of a, a cosmic whole like you're new, you're unique but you're also not the same time. That's right. And I think they also took very seriously that individuals in isolation live very difficult lives. So in other words, Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita is basically is conveying that to live a solitary existence is necessarily a, a futile and counterproductive one. And I think that this this is an idea that the transcendentalists and the pragmatists also have. We don't live in a bubble. We're not all by ourselves. We are necessarily with others all the time. And negotiating our freedom in the midst of otherness or in the midst of companionship is probably the task of life. And connecting the transcendentalists with with uh, your book we talked about last time, Hiking with Nietzsche, from what I understand, Nietzsche read Emerson. Like He was aware of Emerson in his writing, right? That's right. And I mean, what Nietzsche sees in Emerson is he says that Emerson is a good friend for his what he calls skepsis, skepsis being the word that gives us skeptical. And Emerson and Nietzsche share a deep skepticism about the worth of conventional wisdom and the, the worth of conventional institutions like, for example, modern Christianity. And both of them are critical of Christianity for particular reasons. And in fact, many of the transcendentalists are critical of uh, political, educational, and religious institutions because they believe that these institutions lead lead a person astray and make it very difficult for them to follow their conscience or their call to conscience. Well, it's interesting. Emerson often gave these critiques at churches, like they would be like sermons almost. That's right. I mean, he got kicked. He basically got kicked out of Harvard, or rather, banned from Harvard for. 30 years for giving the, what, what's called the Divinity School Address. And the Divinity School Address is basically his critique of Christianity. He had done something similar in, in an essay or in a series, series of lectures called The American Scholar. And The American Scholar said that we needed to break from European intellectual traditions. Everybody at Harvard loved that essay, or rather that lecture. But when he gave the Divinity School Address, he was making the claim that we needed to break from the stultifying or deadening influence of Christianity, which was still very much alive and well at Harvard, and it got him got him banned for many decades from speaking there. So we've been talking about Emerson. Thoreau was another big player in the transcendentalist movement. How did his approach to transcendentalism differ for Emerson, or did it even differ? No, I think it differed probably in in degree, maybe not in kind. So Thoreau. Thoreau's philosophy I see as a sort of modern version of cynicism. Cynicism is a very old philosophy 
that says that institutions corrupt individuals and that in order to avoid that corruption, individuals should separate themselves off or get a little distance on society. And that's what Thoreau's attempting to do at Walden. Thoreau also, um, like the cynics and like Nietzsche, is not afraid to be extremely polemical or extremely critical of his neighbors, of the people who are very well respected in society. This doesn't gain him a huge number of friends. Emerson, I think, on the whole, was a bit more congenial, was a bit more uh, well-mannered compared to his friend Thoreau. Thoreau was less disciplined than Emerson as well, and believed that philosophy should be wed with other, other forms of writing, such as narrative and poetry. Emerson believed the same, but not to the extent that Thoreau did. So Walden is really the account of Thoreau's life in the woods. Not, not very remote woods, only two miles from Concord, but still woods nonetheless. And he believes that narrative, uh, first-person narrative, needs to be reintroduced to philosophical inquiry in order for philosophical inquiry to actually matter to individuals and their communities. It's kind of like Nietzsche. Like, didn't Nietzsche say like all philosophy is biography? Like, that's right. <laughs> that's right. All philosophy is either conscious or unconscious autobiography. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the transcendentalists, like, I think everyone can probably see the influence, the lasting influence they've had, particularly on American culture. That's still with us. This idea of self reliance, of of being an individual, freedom. Let's talk about the pragmatists. Where did the pragmatists pick up where the transcendentalists left off? So the pragmatists arising and pragmatism arising in the 1870s came on the heels of Darwin publishing The Origin of Species in 1858. And Darwin's insights about the nature of biological development and evolution radically shifted the landscape, the intellectual landscape of America and Europe. One of the thoughts that came out of Darwin and picked up by his friend Thomas Huxley, the Englishman, uh, often known as Darwin's bulldog, was that human beings are related genealogically or evolutionarily to basic, you know, let's just say apes. And Huxley and Darwin began to struggle with the thought that then, you know, the American pragmatists had to take up, which was, if we are just animals, just organisms, are we then not dictated or are our lives not dictated by natural laws, by physical laws? And if that's the case, then where does free will reside or exist? So this is a question that American transcendentalists had taken up, but they hadn't been forced to go against modern science or to integrate their ideas into modern science that then was becoming general knowledge. And that's what the pragmatists had to do. The pragmatists were good scientists. C.S. Peirce, William James, John Dewey, they were all scientists of a certain sort. James founding empirical psychology, Peirce being a chemist and a physicist. What these scientist philosophers had to do was to reconcile the findings of modern science, particularly evolutionary science, with a hope and desire to maintain free will and to maintain moral order by virtue of free will. Because after all, 
morals would mean very little if we were controlled simply by physical laws, or at least they thought that. So that's one difference, and I can sort of expand on that a little bit. The other difference is that American pragmatism is coming out of the Civil War, and Louis Menon suggests, and I think he's right, that in his book, The Metaphysical Club, that American pragmatism looked at the ideological struggle of the Civil War and came to the conclusion that ideologies and dogma led into violent conflict. And so what they tried to do is to propose a model of truth that was flexible, that was empirically verifiable or falsifiable, and to judge truth on the basis of its practical consequences which is very different than just holding on to an ideology and going and shedding blood, you know, having bloodshed in accord with that ideology. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made to measure suit. Suit started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. 
See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, let's talk about this, this problem of free will that the pragmatists try to sure. tackle, because this is something, this is a question that plagued William James like, mm-hmm. his whole life. And in, and in fact, it, it put him in these funks. Like he got really depressed, like on the verge of suicide because for him, and I think people would, when they think about this, like if there's no free will, like life has no meaning. Right. I can't yeah. make my own. So that was like, he's like, he was grappling this question. Is life even worth living? Mm-hmm. So what was, how did James, like, what was his answer to those questions? Are we free? Does life have meaning? It's great. So, I mean, James is usually thought of as this very vivacious, very active man. But what we forget when we read James's biography is that he was a depressive at many places in his life, and a depressive because of philosophical issues like the one that you just described. In his 20s, James considers suicide, and when he reaches the age of 30, he reaches a real crisis in his life. He has so many options in terms of what to do professionally, he has so many opportunities, but they just don't seem to matter. Because, in a cosmic sense, he he oftentimes says, why bother? I'm not in control anyway, right? So what happens in 1874 is that he reads a Frenchman by the name of Charles Renouvier. And Renouvier makes an argument. He says that there are not proofs for the existence of free will, but that individuals in the absence of proof can believe that they are free and they very act of believing that they are free can be their first free act, and that once they start acting as if they have free will, then it changes the way that the world both looks and is, which is a strange thought. But this is the basis of James James's famous essay, what's entitled The Will to Believe. James says that in the absence of empirical proof about certain matters, it is still all right for us to believe wholeheartedly in something. And in fact, our belief then changes the circumstance and changes the universe. You can think about this in terms of depression, for example. James, the depressive, suggests a couple things. He says, act as if you are in a good mood, and it will change your perspective. It will change how you feel. In other words, my mother used to say, fake it till you make it. 
So basically, James says, don't lie down if you're depressed. Stand up, take a big breath of fresh air, and see how it changes. Changes your stature, changes how you, how you live, how you think. The same goes for moral issues and also relationship issues. James says, there's no empirical proof to say that you're going to fall in love, but you have to be open and believe in it or it, or it simply probably will not happen. So even in the absence of empirical evidence, we can still believe, James thought. And so this is an, a perfect example of pragmatism. Like this, for James, like this is true because the consequences of this idea of just believing, even if you don't have evidence that is true, right. it works. Like it changes your outlook on life. That's right. And I mean, James, in the varieties of religious experience, makes this distinction between the two types of people, the healthy-minded and the sick-souled. And these aren't derogatory. He's not criticizing the sick-souled. In fact, he was probably one of them. He simply says that the sick-souled, the universe just doesn't seem square with them. Something is out of joint. And most of his philosophy is geared to overcome that sense of disjointedness the sense that things just aren't right. And in many cases, you can will yourself into another state of affairs and will the universe into another state of affairs. Not always, but frequently enough that it's worth trying. So this idea of that you can believe something, even if you don't have empirical evidence that it's true, this is something I thought was interesting about the pragmatists as I was reading your description of them and as I read more about them. They're an interesting group of people because they're both scientific. You know, William James was a psychologist who did scientific experiments, data-driven. But at the same time, they were like spiritual as well. That's can right. you describe, I mean, like they're, they're scientific and spiritual in a way that I think would bother a lot of people today. Yeah. So one caveat needs to be expressed. William James believed in evidence. So in other words, if there was evidence for, for example, climate change, James would be very interested in hearing all of the evidence. So it's not simply that you can believe what you want in every single case. He, however, says that there are certain types of questions that cannot be closed automatically and in some cases can be believed in or answers can be believed in if they're the type of issues that don't allow empirical justification. So issues of believing in God, for example, issues of believing in a love, in a love affair, issues in believing in being moral, and issues about free will. These are the sorts of categories that James thinks that you can entertain, even if you don't have empirical, standard empirical justification. Now, when it comes to spirituality and science. James believed that, I want to be very careful here, James believed in science, but he also thought that the standard methods of science, the way we typically conduct science today even, miss small nuances, small existences the reality of what he oftentimes describes as the unseen. James believed in an unseen order. Whether we call that ghosts, or whether we call that the spiritual world, or whether we just call it something that is happening below the level of consciousness, James believed that this was a deeply interesting question and certainly did not preempt or certainly did not preclude the possibility that this order existed. 
James was interested in psychics for his entire life, mediums his entire life. He was the founder of the American Society for Psychical Research, which conducted empirical experiments about psychic, you know, psychic phenomenon or supernormal phenomenon. James said at the end of his life that th- these tests had been inconclusive, but that it seemed like the world was set up in such a way that the questions should continue. James was open to closing empirical issues if proof could be found. Okay, in other words, coming to conclusions. But these conclusions were always provisional and could be reopened on on a different empirical basis. He also, however, was open to a type of spirituality which many scientists today might not agree with. But I, for one, think that it's quite interesting to think about what we don't see and how to, how to attune ourselves to the unseen order. Because it's certainly the case that everyone has had the experience of not seeing something and then it coming into sight. And that coming to, I think, is what James is very interested in. And also, in part, what he thinks that life should be about, coming to, becoming aware of something that was unseen. How is so, you know, pragmatism in James's philosophy and Pierce's philosophy, it's all about... It was, I mean, he was trying to answer that big question of does free will exist? Does life have meaning? Mm-hmm. How has his philosophy influenced your life on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So in 1895, William James was invited to Holden Chapel, which is the second oldest building at Harvard. And he was invited by the Cambridge YMCA. And the YMCA was asked him to respond to an issue that had plagued Harvard for the last two years, which was the number of suicides on campus. And James began a lecture at Holden called Is Life Worth Living? Uh, which became, becomes a famous essay. Now, this question, is life worth living, has been answered typically in two mutually exclusive ways, yes or no. Okay? And if you're if you're a no, if you believe the no long enough and strongly enough, you kill yourself. You're no longer with us. The history of Western philosophy is usually construed as promoting a yes. Okay, so there have been lots of philosophers that have defended the yes, life is worth living for any number of reasons. Kant thinks that we are rational animals and therefore we can't violate our rational capacities by killing ourselves. Leibniz believes we live in the best of all possible worlds, and far be it from us to mess up the best of all possible worlds. Augustine and a bunch of Christian theologians think that this is God's gift, and we don't have, we don't have the right to violate God's gift. James, however, in 1895, expresses something that I think is the best answer to the question, is life worth living? And he says, he says is life worth living? He says, maybe. It depends on the liver. And at first, I thought that this, as a teenager and as a, in my 20s, I thought this was a complete cop-out. I thought, give me a yes, okay? But over the years, I've thought, this is brilliant for the following reason. To say maybe it depends on the liver is to say that it is up to us to make life worth living. It's up to the liver, which a lot of other explanations about why life is worth living don't give us that power. In other words, it's up to God or it's up to the way the universe works that life is worth living. James says, maybe it's up to the liver. That's one reason why I think it's a smart response and has saved me from 
my own untimely demise more than once. He also says that the maybe is significant because if you think about seeing somebody at the top of Brooklyn Bridge threatening to go off of it, you go up to that person and you don't want to say to them, you're silly, you don't see the point of life, right? It's definitely the case that life is worth living. You want to be compassionate. You want to be able to say, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, right? But why don't we get down off the ledge long enough to just explore that possibility a little longer? Because the possibility is always there that life is worth living. But we have to explore the possibility for ourselves. And, it, and thirdly, the maybe I think is a smart answer because if we think about the most meaningful times in our life, don't they always turn on a maybe, James argues. So think about what is meaningful in life. Love. Well, would love be fun if you knew it was going to happen in advance? Like it turns on a maybe. How about the winning of a game? Do we play a game if we already know the outcome? What about a scientific experiment? Do we know the outcome of that? These all turn on maybes. And James is saying, let's explore the maybe of life. Let's not be afraid of it. He says in this essay, be not afraid of life. Okay, Because it, there's a risk to it, but so too there's also a potential reward if we just risk ourselves. It sounds like uh, so. Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, If, yes. If. That's exactly it. That's nice. I've never thought about that correspondence, but I think it's really there. Yeah, that's nice. So this idea that life is worth living maybe, I mean, this sounds like existentialism as well. Did the, prag yeah. did the pragmatist influence 20th century existentialists? <laughs> yep. Guess who John Paul Sartre, the founder of existentialism, or one of the founders of existentialism, read religiously. Well, William James. So, I mean, yeah, so 20th century existentialism resonates closely with James's philosophy. But how did they differ? What did they, where was their fork? Yeah, so, I mean, some of the, the fork there is that James believed that the universe was fitted to, our hum, to human purposes or could be fitted to human purposes in a way that many existentialists don't. So Camus, Albert Camus, the Frenchman, who's oftentimes put into the existentialist camp controversially, says that we live in a sort of absurd universe, or rather our human condition is absurd because the universe is out of joint with our human purposes. James was not that dismal or that uh, metaphysically pessimistic. And what he believed is that if we attune ourselves to our surroundings, our environment, we will notice that there are chances, affordances, opportunities that the universe gives us, and that we can, in very, very meaningful times, find ourselves very well fitted to the universe. And I think that's a picture that many of the existentialists don't emphasize. Well, let's go back to this library because what happened is you start cataloging these books. You're like, oh my gosh, we got to save these books. And you start putting them in order and cataloging so you can work with the family to potentially donate it to a, a library. But during this time, you start working with a colleague of yours at, named Carol, who was also a philosopher, but she was a Kantian philosopher. And you were more of an existentialist, Nietzsche, American philosopher kind of guy, experience to thy own self be true kind of guy. And those, those, those kind of philosophies, Kant and existentialism, like on the face, sort of, they seem don't incompatible. They don't go together. But like you, 
found that maybe there was actually a connection to Kant and these American philosophers. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, just to the, the story, the, the book is called American Philosophy, A Love Story, and it's a love story. I mean, the fact is, is that Carol and I fell in love in this library. We both went through divorces in order to be together. And so it's a story about two people trying to organize a relationship or a love around central philosophical tenets in the American tradition, one of them being freedom, the other one being a sort of togetherness based on uh, respect and self-respect. Kant, the German philosopher writing in the 1790s, was very good on self-respect and on the duty of self-respect. He says that we are rational we are rational animals. What makes us special is that we can exercise our rationality, that we can set and pursue ends for ourselves, and that we should respect that ability or that capacity in others, um, and that we should respect ourselves for that capacity and not compromise that capacity. That idea about self-respect is one that was carried through in the American transcendentalists. What was not carried through by the American transcendentalists was the sort of lockstep order Kant thought that moral life should be executed on or by. And uh, that's a difference between Kant and the American tradition. And additionally, the Americans thought that the passions and that feeling could also be what guided a life, not just rationality. So that's a difference as well. Carol and I sort of overcame those differences by sort of reaching a compromise. I became a little more analytic or a little more rational, and I think she sort of began to explore freedom in very real ways radical freedom, like the type that Thoreau or Emerson or the existentialists wanted to come to. And I said this to Brett before, Brett, you, before we started, every memoir, this is a 10-year-old memoir, and Hiking with Nietzsche is the story of uh, Carol and I raising our daughter, Becca. And this is the first time that I've mentioned this publicly, but Carol and I are now divorced, and there's one more book that needs to be written. It's called Love's Conditions. And this is uh, a story about how freedom can bring two people together, but also at times freedom can you know, drive people apart. So that will come out a year from now. And who are the philosophers you go to for that one? I go back to my American standbys. So I go to Thoreau on freedom. I now live with Becca. Becca splits her time between Carol and I, our daughter, Becca, seven. Becca and I live in a parsonage right next to Walden Pond. And so Thoreau is a central character, but also Margaret Fuller. Margaret Fuller was deeply ambivalent around marriage and deeply interested in uh, women's rights and also in untraditional forms of love and marriage. And so gives us some perspective on uh, what happened between Carol and I. So maybe the listeners will be interested, but they'll have to wait for the book. Sure. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the pragmatist also too grapples that idea of how freedom is connected with love. That's right. And, that's right. And there's, there's risk in both. Like, I guess that was, that's, that goes back to this idea of maybe. That's, that's exactly it. You don't know how it's going to turn out. The maybe can be joyous. It can also be completely filled with despair at times. So uh, the risk is real. So too is the reward. 
So how can grappling with these ideas of American philosophers help our listeners find more meaning and significance? I mean, like, what would be like the question that you would hope people would walk away? I'm going to start thinking about. And, sure. and you're not going to find an answer, possibly. No. I mean, starting with the question, is life worth living, is a nice one to start with. But, other than, but another question that James poses in another essay is, what gives life significance? And that's a very hard question, because the traditional answers to that question in the 21st century, or rather in the 20th century, no longer fit the 21st century. The fact of the matter is, is that Nietzsche wasn't so stupid when he said, God is dead. What he, meant, what he meant by this is that the traditional forms of guidance that we used to look for in life are no longer available to us. God, the authority, is dead. And so it's up to us to make, make our living and make our lives significant. The pragmatists also believed this. They thought, James thought, that two things. One is he was Emersonian enough to believe that exercising our freedom while being together with others is part of what makes life significant. But James also said something that maybe uh, our listeners might tune into, which is he says that the significance of life depends on what he calls the zest. That feeling that you get at the pin of your stomach when you do something significant. And we should, the reader should ask, or listener should ask themselves, what gives me zest? And to go back to a Nietzschean phrase, does it elevate my soul or does it crush me? In other words, is this zest long lasting? Where do I find it? What sort of experiences do I have? Another watchword for both the pragmatists and the transcendentalists was experience. And they took this as both a description of life, but also as a mandate. Have an experience. Go. Like, experience the world. And maybe this will get us out of our phones just a little bit, okay? And I know that the, the podcast and the uh, a lot online is great. But also have experiences. Go out and enjoy the world, which I think sometimes we forget in the 21st century. Well, John Keg, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So my website is John Keg. It's so johnkeg.com. A number of pictures from the two different books are there. We also have a book coming out, or I have a book coming out in March with Princeton University Press. It's called Six Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life, which will be out March 17th, but it's on pre-order now. Right. We might have you come back to talk about that in detail. Well, John Keg, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Brett. My guest today was John Keg. He's the author of the book, American Philosophy, A Love Story. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, johnkeg.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash American Philosophy. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper in this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as over 3,000 articles that we've written over the years about how to be a better husband, better father, physical fitness, personal finances. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, you can download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing this show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you all to listen to the A-Win Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.